Good afternoon, everybody. And I mean that in the modern best possible sense of that phrase. Good afternoon. Please turn to Micah chapter 5. So those of you who've known me for a while probably know that I like trains. Okay, um, I design trains for my day job. I enjoy riding trains. I have a few model trains around the house. Most folks these days, of course, don't give trains a second thought. And even though at one time, trains actually played a, a real vital role in connecting people together. But this time of the year, it seems that people start to remember trains. So, show of hands, how many of you at some point in your life had a train running around your Christmas tree? Okay, most everybody, cool. All right. Now, who here has seen the movie Polar Express? Anybody? Okay, wow. <laughs> cool. So maybe some of you have, have a tradition of watching that each year. Um, maybe some of you thought the animation was a little funky and only saw it once, but that's okay either way. Um, like many secular movies, it revolves around somebody. In this case, it's a, it's a young boy uh, who stops believing. Now, usually it's in these secular movies, he stops believing in Santa Claus or some undefined magic of Christmas. And of course, the soundtrack, I mean, this is a big production value movie, right? The soundtrack features none other than Josh Groban, right? Yeah, thank you. Somebody knows who that is. Um, and he, of course, sings this beautifully orchestrated piece, you know, with chords and lyrics designed to tug at our heartstrings. And it culminates in this chorus, believe in what you feel inside and give your dreams the wings to fly. You have everything you need if you just believe. You know, with the swell of the instruments and the sincerity of the vocal performance, we feel inspired. At least, I do. I'm kind of a sucker for that sort of thing, you know? Mostly because I usually associate belief with Jesus. But if you think a little bit more about the lyrics, it leads to a few questions. If you just believe in what? In your abilities? In your feelings? In your dreams? Yeah, talk about dreams. When I was a kid, you know, I saw this advertisement in Popular Science for anti-gravity boots, and my dream was to like fly to my elementary school with these anti-gravity boots, right? That would have been really cool. Yeah, it didn't happen. Now, of course, some of my dreams have come true, but of course, a lot of them didn't, no matter how deeply I felt about them at the time. And the point of this isn't to bash the movie or the song. I kind of like them myself. You know, I'm a little sappy like that. But rather to point out something about belief, about faith. You see, we often get criticized as Christians that we believe in fairy tales. It's a criticism often leveled at us by people who think that man can save himself apart from Christ. You know, never mind the fact that each generation gets tripped up by the same sins as the one that preceded it, as Scripture warns us of, by the way. But here in the pages of Scripture and our verses today in Micah, we see something different. We see a contrast between what happens when we put our faith in creation or the Creator. We see a God who doesn't ask us to believe in Him blindly, Rather, we see a God who tells us the truth about himself 
his plans and about ourselves so that we can have everything we need to believe with a reasonable faith. So let's pray and open up God's word. Father God, what a privilege it is to come to you in prayer. We sometimes forget that privilege. And that privilege came to us through Jesus, whose birth we celebrate in a week. Lord, we ask that you would open up your word to us in fresh ways, that our hearts would be inspired in your love for us, and that we would go forth from this place and share that love with others. We ask this in Jesus' name, that you would be glorified. Amen. All right, Micah 5, here we go. Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. With a rod, they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore, he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. The rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel, and he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall dwell secure. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. When the Assyrian comes into our land and treads in our palaces, then we will raise against him seven shepherds and eight princes of men. They shall shepherd the land of Assyria with a sword and the land of Nimrod at its entrances. And he shall deliver us from the Assyrian when he comes into our land and treads within our border. Then the remnant of Jacob shall be in the midst of many peoples, like dew from the Lord, like showers on the grass, which delay not for a man, nor wait for the children of man. And the remnant of Jacob shall be among the nations, in the midst of many peoples, like a lion among the flocks of sheep, which, when it goes through, treads down and tears in pieces, and there is none to deliver. Your hand shall be lifted up over your adversaries, and all your enemies shall be cut off. And in that day, declares the Lord, I will cut off your horses from among you and will destroy your chariots. And I will cut off the cities of your land and throw down all your strongholds. And I will cut off sorceries from your hand. And you shall have no more tellers of fortunes. And I will cut off your carved images and your pillars from among you. And you shall bow down no more to the work of your hands. And I will root out your Asherah images from among you and destroy your cities. And in anger and wrath, I will execute vengeance on the nations that did not obey. So if you haven't read this chapter in a while, or ever, and you're anything like me, you're probably scratching your head, unsure of what to make of most of that. As Bill pointed out a few weeks ago, we're dealing with prophecies in poetic form that were collected over two decades. And of course, the prophecies jump around chronologically in the timeline of God's redemptive plan. 
Now, it's important to keep several things in mind when we're encountering prophecy in Scripture. First of all, prophecy either lays the groundwork for elements of God's redemptive plan, or it serves to bring correction to God's people. And of course, ultimately, that correction serves God's redemptive plan. And because prophecy ultimately serves God's redemptive plan, even corrective words are attended with hope. And not hope about material things, but hope about being restored to right standing with God. Prophecy also comes with ground rules, with blessings and curses, all up front. So there's no backfilling or backpedaling if the prophecy doesn't come true. Keep these things in mind when you encounter any modern so-called prophets. It also comes with specific markers, markers so that it can be recognized and the truth of God's word is further confirmed when it's fulfilled. And with prophecies concerning the Messiah, they start right at the fall, all the way back in Genesis. And the markers get more and more specific over the course of the Old Testament writings. And we'll see that in today's passage. So all of that adds up to building up in us a reasonable faith, belief that's based in truth. See, we can see how God has made and kept promises in the past so that we can trust in his promises for today and the future. And as we go through this passage, I'll point out some of these markers so that our belief can be built up as well. Now, it's easy to lose sight of how these prophecies impact us personally when they so often contain this big picture language about nations and wars. And that's why looking at them through the lens of redemptive history is important because ultimately, each of our stories, each of our stories, everybody here, everybody listening to me, is a part of God's redemptive plan. So let's take a closer look at these verses, starting in verse 1. Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. With a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. I think there's a little bit of a sarcastic edge to this verse. The Spirit seems to be pointing out the weakness of Israel putting their faith in the strength of their armies instead of the strength of the Lord, their God. We'll see this again in verse 10. See, the implication is that these attacking armies will be able to readily capture the human leader of Israel. And while it's another warning of the coming exile to the people of Micah's day, to us, who look back on it as historical fact, it confirms that our belief is well-placed in a God who does what he says he will do. Now, with that, it's a negative marker, if you will. See, so it's something bad from the immediate perspective of those experiencing it, right? They ended up getting exiled to, out of Israel and Judah. But something, it's something that's verifying the truth of God's word nonetheless because it actually happened. And looked at it another way, when God says there are consequences for sin, right? we can look back in history and see that, yes, he indeed rightly punishes the guilty. 
That should build up our belief. He does what he says he's going to do. Now, one of the patterns of human behavior that we see throughout the Old Testament is that the government God puts in authority over the people is really just a reflection of the hearts of the majority of the people. So while in this particular verse, the leader of Israel called out, is called out, it's also apparent that the people, right, the daughter of troops, have set aside their belief in God. And what I mean by that is God's covenant promises, right, set up blessings and curses. We just talked about that. The blessings follow from our obedience to God's law and, of course, the curses from disobedience. When we follow his law, when we love God and love our neighbors, we demonstrate that we believe him and his promises. And when we deliberately disobey, we demonstrate that we don't believe in him. This isn't to say that even the obedient don't encounter their share of troubles. See, belief is easy if all we ever experience are good things. But will we stand firm in that belief when the fires of testing come? Now, that first verse sets up a tremendous con contrast with the true leader of Israel and a positive marker of his coming outlined starting in verse 2. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. Therefore, he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. The rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel, and he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure, for he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. O oh, little town of Bethlehem, so little it was almost forgotten among the tribes of Israel. Sure, David hailed from there, but he was, of course, mostly associated with Jerusalem, right? But here we have a distinct positive marker. And I say distinct because when you, when you add up all the various specific things spoken about the coming Messiah and how they were all fulfilled in Jesus, you really can't honestly deny that he isn't the Christ. Now, you might be able to spin something like the conquest of Jerusalem as the natural outworking of human events. But calling out that the Messiah would enter the world in this little insignificant town that's five miles southwest of Jerusalem, 700 plus years ahead of when it happened, that's pretty distinct. And since it actually happened, it should build up our belief. Notice also the connectedness to earlier prophecies about the Messiah. And Micah wasn't kidding about those ancient days because the earliest hints of the ancient of days, God's redemptive plan, starts way, way back in Genesis. Genesis 3.15, in fact. I will put enmity, try to say that one fast, between you, and he's speaking to the serpent, of course, and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. 
Now, the prophecy from Micah also about Christ also points towards the 400 years of prophetic silence. We sang about that just a little while ago. 400 years of prophetic silence, which would start 300 years after Micah prophesied it. Again, we see that documented as historical fact and should be encouraged in our belief by that. But with the coming of Christ comes a return from exile of those estranged from God. To me, in view here are both Jews and Gentiles who would form the true people of God through belief in Jesus. And what do we see in Acts, right? Both Jew and Gentile come to saving faith through belief in Jesus Christ. Belief based in truth. God said it was going to happen, and it did. If we look at verse 4, it highlights the contrast between that worldly leader of Israel that we read about in verse 1 and Jesus the shepherd. See, recall that in verse 1, the leader of Israel mustered the troops. In other words, he called other people to fight the battle. Now think of what shepherds do. They guide the sheep. They watch over the sheep. They defend the sheep. And now we must look at how this shepherd leader does his work. Remember, this is referring to Christ. He does this in the strength of the Lord, not using military might or human cunning, but in God's power, which implies doing things God's way. He also does this in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. So unlike most human leaders, he's not out to steal glory from God, but rather to bring glory and honor to God. Of course, the New Testament accounts show Jesus shepherding in exactly these ways. And indeed, he claims it for himself, which again should build up our belief. Let's look at John chapter 10. This is Jesus speaking. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep, and I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life, that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. Now, deep down, I would say most of us have a strong desire to live a safe and peaceful life, right? And sadly, in this broken world, we aren't guaranteed that sort of life. But we are promised it through Jesus at his return. We see this when we connect the end of verse 4, which, as you recall, is, he shall be great to the ends of the earth, with Jesus' own words from Matthew 24. 
And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. Of course, for us, the end is a good thing, right? Because we get to be with Christ. Let's continue in verse 5. When the Assyrian comes into our land and treads in our palaces, then we will raise against him seven shepherds and eight princes of men. They shall shepherd the land of Assyria with the sword and the land of Nimrod at its entrances. And he shall deliver us from the Assyrian when he comes into our land and treads within our border. For those in Israel and Judah at that time, the possibility of Assyrian and Babylonian invasion was a very real threat, a very real fear. And yet in the context of the passage, Micah is looking ahead to the time of Christ and beyond when his people would spread the gospel. In that context, the Assyrian would represent those who actively oppose the spread of the gospel. And the seven shepherds and eight princes of men represent a host of church leaders throughout the ages to bring the gospel to the whole world. Do they do it by conquest, forcing people to accept Christ? By no means. I believe the sword reference foreshadows what we read in Hebrews chapter 4. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit of joints and marrow and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Now, if we, if we think of how Christianity grew outward from Jerusalem after Pentecost and how that mirrors the language of this passage, it's another marker for us to build belief upon. We see it here in Micah, what happened in the book of Acts. The book of Acts, of course, describes how various people groups reacted when confronted by the word of God. So most of those groups had no context for the God of the Hebrews. They only knew the God's little g that they invented and profited by. Many rose up and opposed the apostles, and yet, and yet, some repented and believed in Jesus. And the kingdom of God continued to grow despite the opposition to it. We still see this pattern today. And tucked into the end of this passage is a promise for us to believe in. And he shall deliver us from the Assyrian when he comes into our land and treads within our border. Now, based on what we've just been talking about, we could almost read that as this. And he shall deliver us from fear when it comes into our hearts and seeks to stop us from sharing the gospel. Now, that's pretty cool if you think about it. He's telling us ahead of time, right? It's another marker to build up our belief. He's telling us ahead of time that people will oppose the gospel. They'll oppose it with things that are liable to bring fear to our hearts. I mean, think of the, the early Christians in Rome, right? <laughs> You're going to get fed to the lions, hung up on a cross. And in telling us ahead of time, it helps us to believe because we see the truth of Scripture playing out in our own lives when it happens. And he's promising that if we believe in him and his promises, 
that he will help us persevere through that fear and ultimately deliver us from it. Let's continue with verse 7. Then the remnant of Jacob shall be in the midst of many peoples, like dew from the Lord, like showers on the grass, which delay not for a man, nor wait for the children of man. And the remnant of Jacob shall be among the nations, in the midst of many peoples, like a lion among the flocks of sheep, which, when it goes through, treads down and tears in pieces, and there is none to deliver. Your hand shall be lifted up over your adversaries, and all your enemies shall be cut off. For me, I think this is one of those fun juxtapositions in Scripture. See, we tend to think of a remnant as like a weak, small group of people, right? Yet here this remnant is portrayed as a lion conquering wherever it goes. And at the same time, it's portrayed as dew from the Lord, like showers on the grass. Now, I think of dew and showers. These are, are gentle and plentiful and refreshing and provide welcome to moisture. In our day, you can find believers in almost every country around the world. Score another marker for Scripture, right? To help build up our belief. And as the Spirit moves through those believers, more of those enemies are brought into the kingdom. And those who don't come, of course, will ultimately experience God's rightful justice. That every tribe, tongue, and nation will be represented in God's kingdom. And this happens regardless of what man try, may try to do to stop it. Now, sadly, if you talk to some Christians today, it seems they want to retreat into some isolated compound or hole up in some man-governed theocratic false paradise. That's not what we see in this passage as the prophet paints a picture of the era that we're living in. And that's not how the gospel goes forth. I'd also like to caution us here about our use of the word enemy, right? It's all too easy to allow the power of that word to overshadow the reality that those we call enemies are still created in God's image. Jason recently spent three weeks instructing us about that. See, identifying someone as an enemy makes it all too easy to start hating them, to start dehumanizing them, and anyone in their camp. Even worse, to withhold the gospel from them. See, we all started out as enemies of God. But somewhere along the way, some brother or sister shared the gospel with us as Jesus instructed us to do. And thanks to the Spirit's work in our heart, we repented and believed in Jesus. And now we are sons and daughters of the Most High. Let us always be due from the Lord, even as they try to blowtorch the grass, right? That some of those may beat their flamethrowers into fire pits. To paraphrase Kurt's preaching from last week. Hmm. Fire pits, s'mores. Hmm. Now, hopefully you've noticed as we've been reading through Micah, right, that, that God's justice and judgment starts with his people. And we don't just see this in Micah either. It's, it's all throughout Scripture. And as Jason pointed out, 
his warnings and even his discipline is often meant to bring repentance and ultimately belief and the blessing that comes with it. Let's continue on with the end of the, end of the chapter. And in that day, declares the Lord, I will cut off your horses from among you and will destroy your chariots. And I will cut off the cities of your land and throw down all your strongholds. And I will cut off sorceries from your hand. And you shall have no more tellers of fortunes. And I will cut off your carved images and your pillars from among you. And you shall bow down no more to the work of your hands. And I will root out your Asherah images from among you and destroy your cities. And in anger and wrath, I will execute vengeance on the nations that did not obey. Now, if you think about it, this brings us full circle back to verse 1, right? God's people apparently at this time believe that their military strength will save them, be it in their troops or in their military bases. And rather than believe in God's promises, and, and it's not like they don't have hundreds of years of God's faithfulness to look back on, right? Despite all that, they continue to seek after their idols and listen to people who would tell them things contrary to God's word. So God will cleanse his people of these things which distract his people from himself. And he will also make sure that justice is carried out on those who oppose him. All this to remind them of who he is, that their belief would be restored. Okay, you guys still with me out there? Somewhere out there? Good. Some of you thinking about s'mores? Anybody? Uh-huh, yeah. Well, we're almost done, so hang in there. Of course, so we have to ask after reading all this prophecy and trying to figure out what it's all meaning, what does it mean for, for you and me today, right? If we're honest with ourselves, we, we really aren't much different than the Israelites. Despite being given the gift of salvation, despite being given God's word to remind us of all that he has done to give us this gift, the bread and the juice that we just celebrated, despite being given our brothers and sisters and the Holy Spirit in our hearts, do we not drift into unbelief? That is to say, do we pretend that our sins are not infinitely offensive to God? Do we allow other things to displace God as the number one love of our hearts? Do we find ways to hate our neighbors instead of loving them? Do we not, when life seems cold and hard and, and difficult, begin to doubt God's love for us? Do we not, when we go through times of spiritual dryness, feel abandoned? And, and friends, left unaddressed, these things can be spiritually devastating. But friends, what we see in this, these verses is that we're not alone in experiencing unbelief and the range of negative impacts it can have on our lives. And when this comes from our own disobedience, even then, our God brings hope. Hope in a baby born in an insignificant town who would shepherd his people and bring them peace. 
hope that we have good reason to believe in because he gives us his word to tell us the truth about himself, his plans, and about ourselves. And not only can we look back in world history and see the truth of Scripture over centuries, thousands of years, we can see God's hand at work in our lives as well. If only we'll take the time to look. Let's, let's think back upon that example of the Polar Express, right, from earlier, and the popularity of similar movies. See, it would seem that one of the marks of the Imago Dei in each of us is a need to believe. And apart from Jesus, we, we try to feed that need to believe on our dreams or our feelings or our intellect or our skills, anything but our Creator. See, all those other things will at some point fail us. What we find in Scripture is a God who will never fail us. Our belief in Jesus is not some fairy tale. It's borne out not just in history, but in millions of transformed hearts. See, while the world can try to put on a brave face and say, just believe, we can fill out that sentence with confidence saying, just believe in Jesus. Amen? Friends, I would encourage you this Christmas season to push the pause button. Now, I know that is very, very difficult to do, but do it nonetheless. A suggestion? Meditate on Luke chapter 2. Of course, it's the famous one that everybody talks about, but it describes the birth of Christ. And as you read that, see with fresh eyes all that God did to supernaturally intervene to redeem us from the punishment that we as sinners deserve. It will do wonders to build up your belief. And remember that, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, while we were still enemies of God, Christ died for us. And the truth of that love is all around us. If you just believe. Let's pray. Father God, Jesus encountered the man who said, I believe, help my unbelief. And as we go through life, we all have those seasons where our belief waxes and wanes. But Lord, as we study your word, as we think deeply about all that you have done to save us, meticulously, right from the fall, you set in, in motion your plan of salvation. That in this day, we can be sons and daughters of God by repenting and believing in Jesus Christ. Not anything we can do, not some feeling or, or skill or whatever. That's all because of Christ, because of the gift that we celebrate at Christmas time. Lord, let us celebrate for all we're worth this season, focusing on the true meaning of Christmas, the gift that has been given. And it's a gift that we can't keep to ourselves. You've charged us to share that gift with others. 
And let us walk into the new year with a fresh sense of urgency that we need to share that love with others because there's so many people who need that love, who are desperate, who have believed in things that have failed them and who need to believe in something that will never fail them. Help us, Lord. Help us to believe. In Jesus' name, amen.